All right, so welcome to episode four of APIs You Won't Hate. Um, I'm Matt here, as always, with my really good friends, Phil and Mike. Guys, how's it going? Hey, Matt. How you doing, man? I'm hanging in there. How are you guys doing? I'm good. I'm good. And I'm doing pretty good as well. My my foot works now, so I'm not limping anymore. I'm, I'm back to being a two-legged human being. Right on. What a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. Is... Do you think you can go all of 2020 without getting injured? That's absolutely impossible. No, that's not going to happen. Uh, <laughs> okay. I think I'm we're going to start. We're going to start a bet and see which injury happens first. Yeah. So I'm back in the UK at the moment, um, and I was hanging out with my parents the last couple of days, and um, it came up a conversation that the first time I got hit by a car door was three. Um, really? Like, <laughs> yeah. I was cycling down the road, and one of my neighbors opened their door, like as I was cycling up behind their car. And I just went like into their car, like into the back seat, <laughs> straight off my bike and just into it. So um, I, I've been doing that for, I'm 31 now, so I've been crushing for quite a while. I don't think it's going to stop. No, but you have good experience. So <laughs> yep, yeah, I hear right. fast. Uh, what are we talking about today apart from, apart from bikes? What am I, what are we talking um, about? <laughs> so a couple of weeks ago, we threw out a tweet asking people to send us their questions and we would kind of do like a, a round table discussion uh we got four really good questions um so without any you know waiting let's just jump right into it um and then we'll talk about phil stealing stoplights twitter account later on um so to start off our first question comes from someone named rob the bob and i'm gonna rob asks should my api support content negotiation why even care? Everybody uses JSON. Um, I the I think we should stipulate not everyone uses JSON. So, um, but Phil, I mean, you, you care to explain kind of like why should we care about content negotiation as we're going into twenty twenty? Yeah, yeah. Let's um, start start with you into an even more basic level too. Give us like a hundred level explanation of content negotiation. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, content negotiation is when uh, you can use like the you have different content types, right? So there's um, JSON is the obvious example everyone everyone thinks about, but there's there's XML and CSV, and maybe you have YAML, and a couple of APIs used to have Lolcat, which is a, a different data format they invented. Um, but yeah, generally, generally speaking, all you got to do is put in kind of an accept header, and you say like accept application XML, and then if the API um, is able to offer you XML, you'll get it. Um, you can get really advanced, and you can say like I'd like XML, um, but I'll also take JSON if you've got it, you know, so you can kind of list a series of preferences. Um, and there's a bunch of other different accept uh, headers that are like variants of, of accept, like accept hyphen lang, and you can get different languages if the API supports them, and um, accept charset and, and a bunch of other things. So um, yes, you want content negotiation in general, uh, but the question is asking like, everyone uses JSON, why not just do that? Um, yeah, like JSON is the most popular thing around, um, but definitely not everyone uses JSON. Like the the whole financial and banking sector is still super excited about XML. Um, if you're building an API, is a good chance you only really need to offer JSON unless somebody else requests it, right? Like don't don't build stuff that you don't need to build. Um, and so, like, if none of your users ever request, like, if someone says, "Oh, I want to, I want Protobuf," then you should be like, "All right, okay, we'll add that." Um, if, if you see business value in it, right? So um, maybe, 
you should add other stuff. But the more the more common example is um, things like image uploads. I've written a blog about that in the past, where uh, you can you can send it application slash JSON, which has a URL, which is where an uploaded uh, image might be, and it can uh, your API can then say, "Oh, great! I'll just grab that image from the URL you sent me. Thank you very much." Um, but then if you send it a uh, send it a request with uh, the content type is um, image slash PNG, then you're actually uploading a PNG image directly to the server as well. So there's there's reasons for content negotiation that aren't just JSON versus YAML. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Because, um, I mean, like you said, the banking is still uses XML pretty heavily. Um, a lot of other... It, it actually, like, based on Twitter, I, I see kind of a... a <clears throat> a revolution coming back to XML because people kind of like the verboseness and the strictness of the structure versus um, how you can kind of just do whatever you want to with JSON and YAML. Um, Mike, you were going to say something as well. Yeah, I think it's probably worth pointing out that for uh, XML, JSON, YAML, and some of the other sort of similar file formats, um, that those are essentially uh, children of a, of, the, of a similar set, right? So you can at worst, you're giving your consumer the burden of saying, yeah, but I need, you know, you give me XML, but I need it JSON and having them run it through some library or converter on their side to do it. Um, the benefit of content negotiation from, from the API side, obviously, is that you're just giving them what they need and preventing some client somewhere from doing that work. Um, but, but in the end, if you're, I think if you're being attentive to the people that are consuming the data that you're spitting out and you're listening to what they're asking for, you're probably going to have... Um, you know, the, your, your content in a format that is valuable to them, or you may be in a position to stipulate it. Um, but I, I think, I feel like the root of this question is, you know, if everyone's asking for JSON, uh, does it even make sense to, to um, plumb in the functionality to serve up YAML if someone asks for it? Um, and I think that is probably a, a good job for something like analytics. So you can see like how many requests are we really getting that are saying YAML that we're turning down or uh, how many user help desk requests, whatever it may be, are, are turning around with those sorts of things. Um, but I think at, at a bare minimum, you should be listening, but you're also going to end up specifying something in your uh, in your, your API anyway. So even if it's JSON, uh, you, you probably need to say something, right? Mm -hmm. And another thing to point out is that um, you don't just have to, J JSON is a very generic content type, uh, but you can have kind of subsets of JSON um, as well. There's different there's different um, data formats, right? There's JSON API, there's Siren, there's How, there's all these different things, and they have their own um, they have their own kind of uh, content type. It's application slash, you know, maybe Siren plus JSON, and so everything in between the slash and the plus is kind of metadata. You're still saying this is application slash JSON, but you're putting a little bit more uh, extra information in there to identify the specific subset of, of JSON that it is. So um, you could say, uh, I would I would be really happy if you could give me Siren, um, but if you don't support Siren, I'll also take JSON API, right? Um, and, and that could be quite a useful piece of content negotiation to have. Most people aren't gonna build that, definitely not for an internal API. Um, you're not gonna you know bother building in this um, multiple data format support, but if you're a public API and you want these existing standards instead of just rolling your own data format, um, it makes sense to try and support some of the popular ones. And, um, at WeWork, we supported um, just kind of like basic bog standard JSON, but we also supported OData, which is kind of a, another uh, data format. Uh, and we supported OData because we had a bunch of like Salesforce integration. So you could use the API and just deal with normal JSON if you were just one of the normal apps, and that was fine. Um, but if you were like coming from Salesforce, they'd be like, we want to talk to you in OData form. And it'd be like, all right, here it is. 
Um, so there's a lot more use for content negotiation than just maybe switching from JSON to CSV for a report download. There's, there's other other useful things too. Yeah. W would you characterize um, RSS and Atom as one of uh, the common uses of that? Right, A lot of feeds are, are available in one or both of those two. And maybe even just, well, raw XML, but RSS is a subset of XML anyway. Yeah, I guess. I, I always kind of consider those kind of feeds to be more part of the the front end website than the API, but I guess it's the same kind of concept, right? It's here is here is a feed and here is the format I would like it in. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess. You know, that makes sense. And I mean, you, you both bring up good points. If the business case is there, support it. Um, but don't run out of your way to build things that people may or may not use. Um, so really good information there. Um, but at the end of the day, not everyone uses JSON, because I think the point we should really <laughs> um, We'll get that tattooed uh, yeah. on, our, on our necks here. They, yeah, next time we're all together in the same city, we'll get drunk and get a tattoo that <laughs> says not everyone uses JSON. I agree with uh, half of that plan. Do what? I agree with half of that plan. Yeah, we're all getting tattoos. Done. Uh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Completely sober. All right. Our next question. Uh, conveniently did not give us a name, but they asked uh, a really good question. How do you define an SLA for an API specifically for a single endpoint? Is there a quote unquote standard in the industry? 90%, 95, 99, 99.9999. Um, they say, no, that this is there, there, this is different than, um, uptime for the service. So, you know, like, Kind of like, is there a guiding light in the industry for any kind of like service licensing agreement for a public API? That's an interesting question. I, I, it, it feels almost like a trick question at the end to say this is different than the uptime for the service because a lot of it in the end is going to be dictated by whether or not the service is up, right? So if you're if the thing yeah. that's hosting your API goes down, then your API goes down. And that's going to affect that SLA number. Um, I actually saw a tweet maybe yesterday, something somewhere along the lines of this that said something like, "If if you feel like you need a feature uh, and there's a SaaS service that provides it, you should probably use that." Um, but real, recognize that you're taking on some um, uh, liability; that there's some risk there. Uh, but if you go and build the feature for yourself, oftentimes you're taking on something like ten times the amount of risk to build it yourself as opposed to using someone's SaaS service. Um, I I'm, I'm kind of going off the script here a bit, but I feel like. Uh, I would really like to see an analysis of uh, the the amount of risk that piles on as you're using a service that uses a service that uses a service like, you know, what is it, Heroku that uses AWS as its backend that uses plugin services to to host um, things like uh, databases and whatever else um, become really risky. But but I think in general your uptime is better than if you were going to go and build your own um, you know hosting platform or whatever else. Um, with that being said, I have no actual uh, no no premise for how to answer the, the SLA for a single endpoint. I don't, I don't know that I've ever encountered anything like that. Yeah, me neither. Um, I, I, I've been through this question a couple of times recently about like how to define SLAs for APIs. And um, there's definitely uh, not an industry standard. Um, there's, there's no industry standard for like what those numbers are that I know about. And there's no industry standard for like how you record and communicate. Um, that data doesn't fit into open API or anywhere else that they're, they're working on kind of an overlay for SLAs so that you could 
theoretically once open api has the feature called overlays you could <laughs> there's another team that are making the overlay which would you know be a bunch of keywords where you can slot that stuff in but um that's for the that's that's a secondary problem, right? Like first you have to figure out what your SLA should be and you can communicate those anyhow by telling people or putting them on the, on the website or whatever. Um, working out what the number should be is hard. Uh, at WeWork, we basically had three different um, standards of service. We, we came up, uh, my team was kind of trying to come up with this because some teams were perfectly happy with their API responding in 20 seconds. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, long story, uh but other other companies other uh, other teams would demand like they, they'd have an api that would, would crash and fall over all the time right like it was just a giant piece of crap that w was just like just always crashing and it would always take down other services and everything was terrible but if they ever had a problem they would expect um the devops team to respond within seconds right so we basically came up with this concept of um sla being tied with uh, a series of metrics if you manage to meet these metrics then we will offer you an improved support contract. Um, so from coming at this from the point of view of the kind of the DevOps team or the SRA team or the infrastructure team, whatever you want to call them, uh, it would be things like, if you can guarantee your response time will be less than, um, uh, I think we had one, uh, the, the top tier was 50 milliseconds. Uh, that's not network uh, latency. That's just the, you know, the service itself. If you can guarantee 50 milliseconds, you're gold. If you're 200 milliseconds, then you are uh, silver. And if you are like less than a second, then you're bronze. Um, and, and that was one of a couple of metrics uh, and basically meet all of the criteria, uh, then we could offer you better tools such as we put you on the high availability database, the high availability Redis servers. These were systems that cost a lot more money um, and we could kind of put you, it, it, would, it would tell us where we should focus our efforts, right? Like we don't want to get a pager duty every single time a service went down just because that service was built like crap. Um, we, we want to uh, panic about the, the really good systems and the services that need to be um, panicked about. So another one of the metrics was like, how close, how, how far upstream are you? Um, if you are a service that is like the conference room booking system, doesn't really matter if that goes down. We just replace it with an email address and say, talk to Frank. But if you are the permission system that every single system needs in order to figure out if anyone is able to do anything, that needs to be online. So that needs to respond in 50 milliseconds. It needs to have five nines. Um, it needs to have people respond very quickly as soon as as soon as it crashes. Um, and and the other services, yeah, if it's down for six hours, probably probably be fine. Uh, that's kind of how we went about doing it. But how you pick those exact numbers, the exact number of nines, or the exact number of milliseconds that you want to care about for your your different level of uh, services, it's kind of up to you, really. Yeah, I mean, there, there really is no right answer, especially for a single endpoint. Like, if it's only one endpoint, you know, you should have, like, you, you should have resources to kind of make sure it's going to be stable. Um, and I think it's also kind of dependent on what you're doing. If it's a public API um, that you're not making any money off, then, um, you know, who cares? If it goes down, it goes down. If it, you know, get to it when you can. If you're charging for it, then obviously you need to build in some sort of redundancy plan um, because you're not going to be available every single minute of every single day. Um, but I'd be curious, like if anyone knows any kind of standards around writing an SLA, send them our way. Uh, we'd love to check them out. Um, only because I think none of us really are familiar with the legalese aspect of it. We are software developers, not lawyers for many, many, many reasons. Um, 
Although I think at this point, Phil, you should you could probably be like a bike lawyer, couldn't you? I completely missed everything. My internet was down for a while. We were talking about SLA. Now, <laughs> now, now I'm a bike lawyer. What's going on? No, that's, that's about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's about right. No, I was just saying that, uh, uh, you know, SLAs are cool, but we're not lawyers. Um, but, it, you know, if anyone has any resources for us to kind of dig in, that'd be cool. And uh, then I mentioned that while none of us are lawyers or should be lawyers, um, you probably know bike law best based on your shenanigans in New York City. Like, <laughs> you could probably yeah. just do it. I know, uh, I know a, f- a fair bit about uh, hit and runs in New York and the fact that you can get money out of the city for it. It's pretty cool. If you get hit by a car and the person drives off, you basically get social health care in America. Uh, a bunch of my friends are really confused. You just walk into the hospital and you just go, no fault, MVAC. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, come this way, sir. May I take your jacket, sir? Uh, and it's, it's quite fantastic. Wow, what do you know? <laughs> Hey, uh, I, I, I did want to add one more thing to this to this response here is that context is important here. Um, now, now that I'm thinking about this, sometimes that SLA number isn't particularly useful. Uh, so you could define it until you're blue in the face to be, you know, 11 nines or whatever you want. But um, there I worked on a, a project where uh, the most critical API use was in, in a burst. Uh, it was related to events. So think of something like um, release of tickets for a concert. Uh, yeah. where your API might not get hit 99% of the time. No one's checking 99% of the time, but at midnight when uh, concert tickets drop for the Beatles or whatever it might be, people go bananas on your API, and there's a five-minute window where you have to have absolute uh, uptime. And SLA for that period is really hard to define because this 99% number is like completely irrelevant at that point. Uh, so when, when we were working on that project, the goal was instead of like an SLA number, it was more about... Um, Redundancy and targets for uh, dropped uh, connections and failed uh, failed requests, and that was less in terms of uptime and more in terms of uh, volume of requests. So, I think um, for that particular project, it was something like ninety seven percent of requests uh, in the hour after uh, release of, of the event um, we were trying to get through, uh, and that. Yeah. So all that to say that the context is important, right? You have to define the problem in a way that makes sense. Um, and so that's probably why there's not a standard in the industry for this, because uh, the context of, of each API is different. Like that's vastly different from booking meeting rooms at a, a co-work space like we work. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that brings up a great point, the whole context and things like releasing tickets, because we know like Ticketmaster gets hammered, you know, immediately after. But for the rest of the time, their API is always up. Um, so I think that's some good stuff to consider there for SLAs. Um, Andrew Willis sent us another really good question. I think both of y'all are going to have wonderful answers for. He says, across the board, from the return content, authentication, access headers, every company seems to roll their own and require a custom SDK to work with their platform. Why do you think some large companies are less enthusiastic about picking a standard and following it when it comes to API development? Uh, I think I got something for this. Um, I often hear people saying, I don't know if we want to use something like JSON API, just using it as an example, as it's a big kind of all-encompassing standard. Uh, we don't want to use JSON API because we don't see that many big companies using it, right? Like you must have heard that argument before. You could replace that with pretty much any standard, but Ironically, like Netflix, uh, we're using JSON API and a few other giant companies. So big, big, big companies do use it. But people often say because they don't see it everywhere, they don't necessarily want to use it. And a lot of standards exist, um, like JSON API. Again, it, 
in in their slogan it says we're the anti-bike shedding tool right like if you don't know if you don't want to sit around and figure out like oh how do we what, what should our data format look like what do we what do we want to do about pagination how do we how do we define a, co- a collection and a resource how how do they look different like how do we define links where does this go all of the hundred uh, questions and answers that you'd have to come up with basically jason api has said like we got you here's the answer um and so while a lot of people will kind of pick holes in the specific answers for some of them like the, the point is if you don't have an entire api governance team who are available to write your own standard and to write your own style guide and enforce that style guide somehow um, if you're just a couple of people trying to get something done and you want to build an API and you don't want to have to think about those hundred questions, you can use JSON API. And that's kind of the point. Um, bigger companies do have their own API governance team and they're in a, in a situation where they can write their own style guides and they can say, you know, all of our data envelopes should use the monkeys key. And because, you know, they've said it and they've got a buy-in from the company, every single response is going to have a monkeys key now. And, and you know whatever whatever random thing that a company comes up with, if you're able to enforce that, and all of your APIs follow that that standard that standard that you've created, then you kind of don't necessarily need to use existing standards as much. Um, of course, if it's a public API and you've just rolled your own nonsense, then some customers will get annoyed. But most companies just think that you know their way of doing things is smarter than whatever existing standard, especially if they don't like one of the hundred things in the standard, you know? Yeah, I think for large companies too, a lot of them get as large as they are by way of merger and acquisition. Uh, and so they're probably amassing a conglomerate of tools and uh, approaches to APIs that make it really hard to have a singular approach, um, at least while you know while they're maturing as a, as a company that has merged or acquired someone else. Uh, so a lot of the time you, you get these APIs that seem really like, uh, hackneyed and, and crazy uh, because they're coming from different tool sets. Um, and then on the other side of that too, I think is companies that never planned to have a public API that were just building the thing they needed and had to figure out like, oh man, we have a million people who need access to be able to pull their rides off of Strava because they want to build a blah, blah, blah for it. And we never thought about that. And so the requirement was just never there and they kind of backed their way into providing something to the public. Uh, it's frustrating, but that's something that happens too. The, the reality, a lot of this stuff comes down to time, budget, and, and um, uh, the goals of the company. Yeah, what do you think, Matt? Um, I mean, I think both of y'all brought up great points. I think um, as someone who's worked in both startups and larger companies, I think Mike's point really resonates with me, which is um, both both the mergers and acquisitions where um, you know we didn't we we bought company B and they're on you know JSON API. We're using siren or whatever it is and we never really cared to bridge the gap which i think is a lot more common than what people probably expect it to be uh but then also the whole you know someone probably made an api and just threw it out there and never really expected it to a grow to the size that it is and b they never expected to um have to maintain it longer than 60 90 120 days and so now they're kind of in this position where you know their quick rapid application to development kind of pigeonhole them down to a way where getting out of it's not going to be easy at all, um, which I think is a great, great place to, to shove um, a plug for open API. Uh, because, you know, once you get started with that, it makes a lot of these choices really incredibly easy. Um, and so if you haven't checked it out yet, it's 
something I think all three of us talk a lot about, um, but it really kind of helps you pick standards and kind of enforce standards as your company grows, as your API grows and everything else like that. Um, yeah. And open API, like not just the standard, but like using it a bunch with a, a, with a bunch of other tools in your ecosystem. And again, obviously I'm going to mention something from Stoplight here because I spend all day working on solving these problems. Um, but basically, yeah, people are always complaining that their APIs are super inconsistent and they start building brand new APIs and they start, you know, building a whole GraphQL layer just to try and make things consistent. What they could do is just like implement a style guide in, um, whilst, whilst they're working on this stuff. So like with, with Spectral, um, I've started, there's a blog post on our, on our uh, APIs, we want to slash blog, uh, about kind of automating your style guide and not just writing a style guide down as a big old Google doc or a, or a word file. There's a bunch of companies out there. Like I was, I just heard a, a whole talk from Salesforce where they were saying their way of implementing, um, a style guide for their open API descriptions and for the APIs they build is they built one example open API file. And they just ask everybody to go and check it now and then and like try and memorize the rules a bit and like <laughs> try to, um, try to, you know, eyeball it and do a good job of remembering. So that, that's not really the best way to scale this stuff. And you're going to have one person build an API that listened to half the rules and another person build an API that remembered the other half of the rules. And there's no automation or implementation there. Um, so I've been trying to teach people to build their own style guides in as spectral rule sets. So that like while you're developing stuff, you can always know for sure that like all of our JSON parameters are kebab case for some reason, or all of our headers are camel case. If you're weird, you can pick any random standard that you want. Um, and you can kind of mush them, uh, through this kind of spectral thing and you can put it at the CI. Um, you can use uh, Stoplight Studio and it will enforce it as you're, as you're working on stuff. And so like if you're doing the design first, uh, workflow where you're actually designing your open API before you even start writing code, you know, for a fact that everything is going to be consistent when all you've done is mess with a bit of YAML or click a few buttons and you don't have to worry about like, oh, this thing's in production. Now we started documenting it. We've noticed that everything is wrong. <laughs> you yeah. know, you want to, you, you want to find out pretty early on that you're building an API that doesn't look anything like anybody else in the company and then fix it when there's no code to actually fix. Yeah, it's a lot easier to fix things before you deploy it and get users than afterwards. Um, which, funny enough, leads us into the last question that we have, which comes to us from Jimmy um, Bang Oko. I hope I said that right. Um, and he asks, should you version a hypermedia API? Um, I think the simple answer is yes, you should. I don't, uh, I will let Phil, uh, cause I know you've, you've banged on about this one quite a lot. So I'm curious to yeah. see how, like what you think about this one. Yeah, this one's tricky cause there's, um, like real world requirements meet kind of what is a, a nice idea. It's like idealism, um, meets deadlines. Uh, so generally speaking in a, in a proper hypermedia, like RESTful API, you have resources and you have like lots of different representations of those resources. Um, but really there shouldn't be versions don't really work very well with the rest API. Um, if you're linking to other resources, right? Like you, you have a, a V1 user and a V2, um, user, and there's like different companies and there's different, whatever else. Um, if you are coding against a V1 user and it links to companies, 
Is that linked to the V1 company or the V2 companies? Are those users being, is everything being versioned at the same time? Um, or, or different resources versioned separately or, or what? And it just kind of turns into a big old mess. Um, Roy Fielding himself ages ago tweeted saying that like global versioning is a hint at RPC thinking um, and a big middle finger raise to, to rest. And generally that's kind of correct. Like if you think about most APIs that use uh, global versioning, it's most of the time it, it's more like V1 users uh one two three it's more like get users v1 um it's just kind of a, a, a you could re, you could move some of those kind of um parts of the url around a little bit and it would just be like rpc methods right like this is the first version we made at the ability to get a user this is the second version we made at the ability to get a user and it's not really this whole idea of everything on the internet has one unique url it has one identifier and that's the url and like this thing might evolve and change over time um, but it only, there is only one thing. Um, and so like, as soon as you start versioning, you're like, actually there's like six different things and there's no real way to know if they're different. And like the V1 user might change, but, um, and you have V2 cached and guess what? Now, now the V2 user is out of date, but the V1 is, is more new and it just gets super weird. If you, if you mix up like trying to build rest and versions, then you just kind of cock up everything because most of the HTTP conventions fall apart as soon as you have multiple different uh versions of of that same resource because they're not the same resource they're totally different resources that just happen to have like the same what one url segment that's the same you know what i mean yeah no that, that makes a lot of sense i mean i i guess for this though i think it was stripe a couple of years ago came up with the idea of evolution versus just hard versioning is that would that kind of be a, a good path to go down with this kind of stuff uh, Evolution's a good path to go down. Stripe didn't really come up with it. Um, REST has been, most REST advocates have been talking about Evolution forever. Uh, they've been recommending Evolution. Uh, I don't know if it talks about it in the dissertation, but it was just kind of assumed that that's what you'd do. Um, the whole like URL versioning, method-based versioning was kind of a hack that people started to do because they were used to doing it in RPC and weren't quite sure how to do REST properly. So they just kept doing it and called it REST anyway. Um, I didn't really understand the concept of evolution until probably two or three years ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, Stripe, Stripe were talking about a, a very specific way of handling evolution. But once again, we got a blog post on this, but, um, the basic concept of evolution is that you make, uh, backwards compatible changes and then, uh, are very, very cautious about making, um, breaking changes. Like you should basically never do it if it's possible to add, um, it's possible to just kind of add a few new fields to solve the problem or add a new endpoint. You, you should just do that, right? Like if you want to switch from having name to having first name and last name, because Stripe demands it, um, funnily enough, we're using their example, then you can just, you can keep the name field and you can add first name and last name as two extra fields, right? And then if somebody sends you the name, um, then you can explode it and put it in first and last. And if somebody sends you first and last, then you can, you know, mush them together on on the get, and, and they both they both work perfectly fine. Um, that's a really simplistic example of evolution, and there's more advanced examples kind of on the on the blog post. But um, yeah, generally speaking, the idea of evolution is that the people making the API should bend over backwards, trying as hard as they possibly can to maintain the contract, regardless of what internal shenanigans they got to do. Um, 
uh, because that is better than breaking things for the customer. Because if you have one team that have to work three times as hard to get this change done, right? They could have like could have hacked it in an hour, but they had to spend like three hours um, doing it the complicated way. That's probably fine. Um, because it meant that you haven't had to version an entire new API and your hundred customers don't have to now go through and make that change and make sure that, you know, the entire new global version works. And, and, you know, it's really, really hard for clients to follow your changes, um, in that way, when you do global versioning, instead of just kind of maintaining backwards compatibility, compatibility for as long as possible, and then kind of, um, uh, deprecating and slowly removing things uh, over time once you've tracked that no one is still using those things you know it's more it's more work for you but it's less work for your customers and that usually should be what you want in an api yeah it puts a real burden on uh, documentation as well uh, you really really need to be able to explain uh, all of the things that exist and, and at a glance for someone who's about to consume your api or needs to make a change they should be able to tell which are the um fields that are deprecated or, or less supported or hopefully one day going out of support, um, as well as why other fields exist and why things are redundant and things like that. Um, I, I, I use Stripe pretty heavily for one of my projects and uh, they do a reasonably good job of documenting all that stuff. The complexity of their, their API to begin with is something that I sort of boggle at. Um, but they seem to do kind of both, right? They have this, this notion of evolution of their um, API endpoints and the models that, that you can access. Uh, as well as they have versioned APIs that, like you're saying, Phil, those are representative of breaking changes that happen, I mean, very infrequently, probably a couple times a year at most. Um, and uh, I would imagine that the task of keeping that documentation up to date and the code base tested and all of that is, is um, uh, quite a monstrosity, but a lot less than having <laughs> zillions of versions of the API up, up to uh, um, that, that require the consumers to stay up to date on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so Stripe, Stripe's approach to evolution is like a, an extra step. It's pretty advanced. Um, I, I use the super simplistic, like add a few more fields. Um, but uh, yeah, with evolution, what you can generally do is um, actually, so, so Stripe did this in the past. Basically, they would occasionally add fields, occasionally add fields, add some more stuff. And then I think at one point they realized that what they were doing just wasn't going to fly anymore. I think they used to have this is years ago, so I forget, but I think they used to have like a payment model and the payment model uh, was for both incoming and outgoing payments. It was like a payment could go either way, right? And this one payment model became bloody huge. And instead of just saying like, okay, screw this V1 API, this whole thing didn't work out. We're going to spend a little while and then make V2, which is mostly about payments. And then we'll throw in any other breaking changes we feel like making and make it really hard to upgrade. What they just kind of said was, all right, payments are going away. Uh, we've got these two new resources called like charge and receiving or whatever it was called, uh, reimbursement, right? So charge and reimbursement. And so charge is outgoing and reimbursement is coming back in. And um, they all may well have shared the same kind of data model internally. I actually read something about this ages ago. Uh, I think this is what they did. They, they did a bunch of really intelligent shit with the data store. But um, basically, you could use any of those endpoints. You could, you know, you could send a charge or you could send a payment. And internally, it would all be updating the same data model. But then they deprecated the the payment, and uh, eventually it just went away. Right? They're like they warned people for a certain amount of time, and then it was gone. But that's not exactly how it went. Like fair enough, that's a simplistic view. Um, but that's pretty much what evolution is all about. Like uh, at work, at WeWork, we had um, what do we have? We had we, companies was kind of shitty, and companies was tied to like you know a user could be part of one company, but they you know that was it. 
um, and things got really complicated and we added loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of fields. And then eventually we just said, you know what, screw companies, we're going to have accounts because companies was kind of incorrect. We had universities and other organizations. And so I think we just like renamed the resource and just made it look totally different. Um, and there's another example in the blog about like, uh, for a carpooling company, we had matches and matches were between a single driver and a single user. Um, and we kind of grew that for a really long time until, well, actually now these carpools can have multiple drivers. And so this whole glue between one user and uh, one rider and one driver suddenly doesn't work anymore. So we just ditched the entire matches concept and came up with riders and then deleted matches. Um, and obviously, you know, they, they pointed to each other internally for a while. So it's kind of about being a bit more intelligent and, and kind of transitioning stuff and then only deleting the bit that you need to delete. And you know that if somebody's using matches, you can look at their API keys and hopefully you can get their email address and you'd be like, hey, come on, stop using this thing. Um, or you know how many people are using that specific piece of functionality and then you can you can remove it. Um, I think Stripe, their approach to evolution now and the blog post that you're talking about, I got a link, is even more intelligent because they do all of that stuff. And at some point you may hit a limitation on how far you can get doing that. You can do you can do deal with most things, like most APIs can deal with most things. Change isn't really that that crazy or huge. And in startups, you know, everyone changes the name of things all the time. So you can just use the new name. But if you do ever hit a limitation on how far you can get with that sort of um, evolution, then the Stripe approach is a bit of an escape hatch where you basically send along like the, the version date and they're like, ah, okay, on, on this day, like this is the version of the, this is when they wrote this code basically, or this is the like version of the API and, and, and then they can apply migrations on top of it. So they're like, at this time, this is what the developer thought this is the documentation they were looking at. This is kind of like how they expected things to work. And so we can apply this. This is kind of three transitions ago. So we can apply these three transitions and get the data that they're sending into the kind of message that we'd like to see today. Um, and if they can kind of update things and they update that date version, then they'll just use the, the new message instead of the, the old version of the message. But it's kind of an escape hatch um, approach, really. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> and I think we really covered uh, Jimmy's question quite in depth there. Um, Especially given that it was a yes, no question. We yeah, did a decent I, job. I really think <laughs> just like, a, like a, a clear yes, no, because he probably had a bet at work is what I'm guessing. And instead he had, he just got probably like the encyclopedia on how to properly... <laughs> handle versioning and deprecations, things like that. Yeah. Um, that also brings up a good point. Um, Cause Mike, you brought up doc, like documentation. Uh, that's another great plug for the open API ecosystem. There's things like redoc um, stoplight has um, the studio, which does automatic doc generation as well, which is another great way to keep um, your versions of APIs updated is by updating that single source of truth, which is your open API spec file. Um, I think that's a really good conversation. Um, please keep sending us your questions because we'd like to keep doing this um, more and more versus um, um, instead of just randomly talking about all kinds of different things. Um, one last thing we want to note is that we do want to thank Stoplight for their continued sponsoring of our efforts to bring you this podcast. Um, we couldn't do it without their help, support, love, and uh, giving Phil a job. So uh, if you have a few minutes after you hear this, just tweet at Stoplight uh, 
telling them thank you. Uh, they will definitely appreciate it. Um, while they give Phil the keys to the kingdom so he can tweet out terrible, terrible, uh, divisive things. Um, <laughs> any last thoughts, gentlemen? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, we should probably try and fit in one more, uh, podcast before the new year. Um, We'll we'll have to do some brainstorming on our Slack for topics for the New Year's uh, or for the December podcast, but maybe something uh, forward looking in what the state of, of the world is in twenty twenty or what we'd like to see would be cool. It's all on fire. It's yeah. all- <laughs> Perfect. Cool. Awesome. Uh Bill, last thoughts? Uh not entirely. I'm looking forward to the next podcast. I think we we have a, a sneaky guest in mind. Hopefully we're talking about designing APIs, which is fun. And uh, we can talk about a book that's not mine. So uh, I'm looking forward to the next podcast. Y'all should smash, smash subscribe. <laughs> yeah. What, what do the kids say? Smash that subscribe button or something? I don't, I'm, not, I'm not cool enough. It's like, hello, fellow kids. Uh, so as you know, Phil, where can we find you on Twitter in case people don't know? I am at Phil Sturgeon um, or go to phil.bike for the more interesting blog. There you go. <laughs> Mike, where can we find you? Yeah, you can chase me down at Irreverent Mike on Twitter. Word. And you can find me at, at Matthew Trask. Um, thanks again for carving out some time today, guys. Appreciate it. And we will talk to everyone in December. Yeah, cheers, folks. See you guys. See you.